I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. Now I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is a NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're going to start with the big news, not just of this week, but of really the month, and it could be the the biggest news of the year. Josh is going to talk to us and and talk us through uh, new developments in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're going to then transition to Ben, who's going to talk about Biden ending anti-espionage in anti-espionage in China initiative. We're going to talk uh, about the fake unity message in the state of the union or i should say the fake moderate message in the state of the union i'll be tackling that and then we're going to kick it over to rachel who's talking about how rick scott has stepped into the leadership breach on the republican side so let's start with josh okay so thank you emily so this has been the story of seemingly the past month i mean certainly the past story of the past week and a half two weeks um obviously since putin gave what can only be described as kind of a harrowing kind of Cold War-esque speech and then sent uh, the troops marching into the Donbass. And as, as we're recording this, it seems like the Russian troops have basically surrounded um, the Ukrainian capital of Kiev or Kiev or however we're pronouncing it these days. Um, and, and the Ukrainian parliamentarians seem to be unable, unable to flee. Um, I, I, this is a well-informed audience. Obviously, we don't, we don't need to give you kind of a play-by-play as to how this is playing out here. I think there's kind of just like a few kind of top-line t- talking uh, or areas for discussion to kind of tease out here. The first is probably more so than I think any event in my kind of adult life, or certainly any event since I've kind of entered the broader realm of uh, commentary, talking head, punditry, all that stuff. It is, it is extraordinarily hard to try to figure out what is actually happening here. There is just so much misinformation out there um, on social media, on cable news. There is so much kind of propaganda out there. And, and there's obviously, Russian propaganda is obviously quite infamous. Um, the, uh, the Russian propaganda obviously played a massive role in, the, in both the 2016 and 2020 election. But that's not to say that there is no shortage of Ukrainian propaganda as well. Um, obviously, I, I think the Ukrainian government knows that they are kind of able to play kind of Western elites and kind of easily duped kind of Westerners in general, kind of like a fiddle. Um, We're seeing a lot of that going on as well. So it's very, very, very hard to kind of, I think, try and separate what is actually happening from what is being reported. Certainly some of these images, these graphics, these videos that we're seeing are unambiguously true. I mean, they don't seem to be doctored, at least I should say. And a lot of these images are terrible, obviously. I mean, the, the refugee crisis, the humanitarian crisis, that Putin's invasion is creating is um, abominable. I mean, we're talking about over a half million Ukrainians fleeing. Last time I checked, I think Poland is taking in a plurality, perhaps even an outright majority of them. Um, But Hungary, Slovakia, Romania, Moldova, a lot of the countries in the region obviously are having to deal with this refugee crisis um, that that Putin's invasion has precipitated here. so look, I, I did a long tweet thread on this um, on, on Sunday, kind of just kind of giving my basic synopsis as to what is going on here. I, I, I think most people are getting this story wrong. Um, obviously, on kind of like uh, the far left, obviously, kind of the, the organs of the mainstream media and certainly kind of like the shills for kind of like generic bland right liberalism, your David French's, Jonah Goldberg's of the world. There's on I, I, both of those sides has been kind of this stark moral dichotomy pose between kind of revanchist Putin Russian imperialism versus Ukraine is this kind of bastion of liberal democracy. And on the, on the other hand, on kind of the, you know, <clears throat> the extreme fringes, you know, I, I, I'm like truly 
fringes here, right? I mean, like like the Nick Fuentes crap that we saw in that video on Friday. You know, there is like I, there was a very very small segment um, that uh, on the American right and maybe even on the left. I don't know that is avowedly kind of pro Putin. Look. Two things can be true at once here, okay? Ukraine is not a bastion of liberal democracy. It is one of the most profoundly corrupt and oligarchic countries in the world in its own right. It is by orders of magnitude, based on what I've seen, um, probably the poorest country in all of Europe. I think Moldova is fairly close, but it is certainly the poorest. Um, it is profoundly corrupt, as anyone with even kind of a cursory knowledge of Joe Biden and Brisbane and all of that would be able to tell you. As recently as the 2014 revolution in Ukraine, um, I think it was literally actually the number one most corrupt country in the world on, on one ranking that I saw. So it is Ukraine, even relative to some of its kind of Central and Eastern European neighbors. I mean, like like Poland or Hungary, for example, it's just simply not as developed. OK, it, it, these two things are not in common here. At the same time, it seems very obvious to me from an American perspective that we should not be obviously I, I feel so silly I have to say this, but we should we should not be rooting for Vladimir Putin. OK, like this is the, this is a man who literally came through the ranks as a KGB thug. Um, he was literally serving in a KGB, op KGB office in East Berlin at the time of the fall of communism when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. Um, you know, at the same time here, I mean, you know, Vladimir Zelensky, I mean, you know, his ammunition, not a ride line, obviously, was the stuff of legends. We should applaud that, obviously. I mean, it was it was it was quite courageous here. But I mean, it's not like Western liberal democracy is on the line here necessarily either. And what I really fear from kind of like a NatCon national conservatism perspective in particular here, maybe this is kind of where I'll open up for discussion. What I fear is that this story in particular is going to lead to kind of like the zombie rise from the dead, if you will, of kind of like Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Samantha Power-esque liberal internationalism. If we let this narrative to truly get out there, that this is just brute imperialism versus Western liberal democracy, and we kind of let this kind of stark moral dichotomy get out there. I think that narrative, if it picks up steam, if it kind of steamrolls, could be a bad, um, a, you know, a, a, an inauspicious trend for kind of NACONs in general here. And, and I think that is true while simultaneously we should be taking prudential, reasonable means to support Ukraine. Those are not in tension with one another. So it's a nuanced kind of delicate balancing act, but I'd be curious if anyone um, disagrees or has anything to add. I mean, I, I almost think we're at that point where, you know, what this invasion has given us, what Russia has given the West is a reason for the neocons to become relevant again. <laughs> and they will be beating this drum for the foreseeable future. I think this was a huge setback for anyone who, you know, wanted to have uh, the national interest conversation. I think that's for two reasons. You know, one, um, just, and maybe maybe this is the first and foremost reason, it, like, it, it seems, you know, every time something like this happens, and I don't want to be flippant about what's happening, because I think it is terrible, and the images coming out of Ukraine are terrible, and, um, you know, the children and women that, uh, that are being subject to this, as they are in every conflict, is just horrific to watch, but it's almost like we, America goes through this, like, fever, um, you know, about having to do something immediately. And it's not always just defense spending, although I'm going to get to that in a second, but it's like, I, I keep thinking back to that post 9-11 moment where remember when France wouldn't jo join our coalition. So we started 
calling French fries freedom fries. It's like the same impulse that makes everybody dump out their Russian vodka, you know, and like not show the Russian flag on like in sporting events. It's it's like we have to almost like have this national catharsis about, you know, that everything is terrible. But I do think sometimes that propels our policy response because it's it's a it, you're not having a reasoned policy debate at that point. You're calling everyone who disagrees with you a traitor. Um, if you remember in the in the wake of 9-11, Bill Maher was actually fired for saying that the hijackers believed in something right? That it wasn't the right thing to believe in, but it was courageous what they did. He was fired from ABC News for saying that. We had to boycott the Dixie Chicks because they questioned the Iraq war. Like there's this very binary mentality that comes down on the country. And I think, you know, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I think it's just a, a thing that happens every time. And when it informs our policy response, that's when you, instead of having a conversation about the national interest, you start having a conversation about who's on your team and who's not, who's for Russia, you know, and, and who's not. And I think you're seeing that on Capitol Hill already, where the White House has asked for $6.4 billion in Ukraine supplemental. From what I was hearing this morning, that's already up to $10 billion. And that's not from the White House, that's from Congress. Um, in addition to the billion dollars we've already sent in security assistance, the 54 million in humanitarian aid. So I do think going forward that this is, you know, the hawks have risen again <laughs> uh, and they will use that binary ideological framing, I think, to their benefit from now on. As long as it lasts. All right, I'm going to try to limit my remarks because we could obviously spend multiple episodes on this topic. And I think there are a lot of threads worth pulling at. Um, if I had to, well, let me just say that I think we're, we have not even talked about like as a nation, our purported leaders, what is the end game here? What is in America's national interest? What are you willing to risk to achieve it? What's the best cost benefit analysis that you can put forward uh, to get there? It, the, re the reactions have been much more reflexive the simplistic framing, to your point, Josh, of this is liberal democracy versus authoritarianism, I think doesn't at all capture the nuance in it, nor does it capture uh, what America's role has been with respect to both Ukraine and Russia for years preceding what has transpired. I also just want to point out that this notion, I'm not even sure why it's being injected except for propaganda purposes, that Vladimir Putin's gone insane. Uh, wants to put put together again the Soviet empire. Uh, I think it flies in the face of the rhetoric and the reality that he felt that this was a time, this was the time to try to strike and achieve something that where there's an asymmetric payoff. This is a far more important strategic situation for Vladimir Putin than it is for us. And consequently, with a weak US leader in power, uh, he thought that now was the time to strike. Uh, setting all of that aside, and we can go through all these nuances, I just want to point out that if there's one word to describe what I've seen on the national scene, it's disingenuousness. Uh, it, it's so disingenuous for the administration to be acting like during the State of the Union, almost as if the U.S. had triumphed in this situation. If you were actually serious with respect to Ukraine, the first thing that you would do is flood the market with oil, take off all the restrictions possible, to unleash American energy and break us of our dependence uh, with Russia. Uh, of course, that has not happened. And of course, you would sanction all of the Russian oil companies and you would cut them off from the international banking system and all the rest of it immediately. But obviously, they have not done that. They fear doing so. Um, and, and let's not forget that at the very time this is going on, Russia is a critical partner, as they were last time around, in helping the Biden administration negotiate and Iran deal 2.0, so that Iran can then flood the market with oil 
and refill its coffers. Iran, of course, being a partner of Russia. China, of course, is also circling here. They see this as an opportunity to exploit, to try to play the role of interlocutor, peacemaker, mediator, and advance their interests as well. Uh, so I think all of these broader strategic points ought to be put in play here. But I also just think it's completely disingenuous to say you're 100% behind Ukraine, et cetera. But then the most important thing of all, energy, the lifeblood in effect of Putin's regime it was basically taken off the table from the start in all this. So I think it's fake. And I don't, and, and I think the other sad point worth making, you know, to Josh's point, we don't know what the truth, the reality is of the situation, is that we now are in a situation, an information environment where we really can't trust what any authorities say. And so it's very hard to assess what's going on and what the right plays are strategically, uh, given that vacuum that's been created by people who have destroyed our trust in them with their propagandizing over the last five plus years. I think we're out of time, but I'll just add that I'm not as blackpilled as Rachel about the rise of the hawks, or I'm not as cynical, um, to put it in normal language, about the rise of the hawks as, as Rachel is, because I think we've seen, you know, Blake, Blake Masters put out an excellent tweet thread on the situation in Ukraine that was nuanced and balanced and very helpful. And I do think we've seen um, some tempering of those old neoconservative instincts in the Republican party, even the reality that we haven't, I mean, yes, we've increased spending and everything um, in, in Ukraine and we have given a lot of assistance. And I think, you know, much of that is, is rightfully um, where it is rightfully uh, allocated. But at the same time, I do think there has been some tempering in this whole conversation and that's really for the better. That's a, that's a good, um, I'm, I'm just glad to see that a nuanced conversation has emerged outside of the sort the sort of mainstream channels. So with that, I think I'm kicking it back to you, Ben, um, to talk to us about the anti-espionage initiative in China that has been canceled. <laughs> yeah. So of course, on the eve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, one day before, uh, the Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department's National Security Division announced at a speech in front of George Mason University's National Security Institute that the Biden administration would be terminating its China initiative. The China initiative was launched under the Trump DOJ as part of its comprehensive strategy to counter the Chinese Communist Party with a focus on basically the whole panoply of threats that the Chinese government poses to the US homeland with a particular focus on combating economic espionage, intellectual property theft, stealing of strategically significant research and the like on the US homeland. And so this led to dozens of cases being brought under this initiative, most notably uh, the pursuit of a former chair of uh, I think a chemistry and biology department at Harvard University, Charles Lieber, the pursuit of the CFO, of Huawei uh, on charges, including you know, conspiracy charges, bank fraud charges, et cetera, relating to work that Huawei did with Iran and other sanctioned countries, and a whole slew of other cases as well since that initiative started in 2018. Uh, from the very start of the Biden administration, it's worth noting, and even before actually the inauguration, Progressive activist groups, uh, Asian identity focused activist groups as well with a left wing tinge, as well as academics, began lobbying the Biden administration quite hard to review this initiative and kill this initiative, along with a whole slew of other demands, uh, including demands that ultimately led to, as I covered for Newsweek for Josh early on in the administration, 
the effort to put in place an executive order barring the use of terms like Chinese coronavirus because they're perceived uh, for the executive uh, agencies to use those terms uh, as being anti-Asian and, of course, you know, creating an anti-Asian backlash nationally, which they've tried to tie that rhetoric uh, to hate crimes against Asians in America. So ultimately, uh, under pressure from woke activists and academics, the administration caved. And the assistant attorney general acknowledged this in his remarks at George Mason. He said two things. He said, one, we've heard concerns from the civil rights community that the China Initiative fueled a narrative of intolerance and bias. And he also said, we've heard these prosecutions and the public narrative they create can lead to a chilling atmosphere for scientists and scholars that damages the scientific enterprise in this country. Those were the two stated rationales by the assistant attorney general for killing this initiative. And what he said was basically, we're going to kill this initiative and we're going to focus on the whole slew of threats, multifaceted threats, not just from China, but a whole slew of nation state actors under a brand new strategy. Implication being China is not the number one threat, clearly, because otherwise you would maintain a China-specific initiative. Uh, and also that there would likely, of course, be a commensurate reallocation of DOJ resources towards pursuing all of these other threats, not China as the number one threat. But it's worth noting that it wasn't just woke academics, woke activists and academics who were the ones lobbying to kill this initiative. It was also the Chinese Communist Party itself. And uh, the foreign ministry spokeswoman for the Chinese Communist Party was asked a question about this the day after the termination of the initiative and said that we had issued something like solemn representations is the word they used, calling for the US government to kill this initiative from its very beginning. To me, the main takeaway from this story beyond the substance of the fact that if the DOJ is not going to pursue these cases, it's obviously hugely detrimental to our national security. At the very same time, by the way, that the DOJ, as I've noted before, is opening a new domestic terror unit to pursue U.S. citizens while it backs off of China. Uh, and this flies in the face, of course, of the so-called tough on China Joe Biden administration. But the other aspect is that the woke activists and academics had a veto over national security on this issue. We subordinated national security interests to political correctness here. I think that it's utterly cataclysmic. And when you look at now the focus on Russia over the focus on China, I think this foretells very, very bad things for the country for the next few years. I'm curious uh, how you all see the termination of this initiative, what you, what you think the consequences might be. I mean, we're fundamentally unserious, right? Like we talk about like the pervasive wokeness that impacts our military and our, you know, intelligence community. And it's all kind of funny, right? Like, haha, that they actually spent money on these initiatives. But no, 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 this is actually impacting our national security. The fact that we cannot, like we have a known problem with Chinese espionage, but we cannot actually go after it because that might be racist. Like that is just the most backwards thing I've ever heard in my life. And it speaks volumes about where we are as a country. And it kind of just ties back into the Ukraine conversation we just had, because yes, what uh, threatening power would look at us and be like, they are at the top of their game. <laughs> All you have to do is call something racist and it removes a tool. Uh, by which, you know, it can be exploited by uh, hostile regimes. Like, come on, this is just a joke. This has to be a joke. 
Well, and that's why, like, you have Biden talking about, he spent, I don't know, a couple sentences on China and his State of the Union address, which we'll get to in a moment. But it's, it's a good example of how easy it is to signal things, superficially signal things, and win your sort of political points and cover your butt. And then your vast administrative state and your giant, you know, bureaucracy is doing all kinds of different things downstream of what you might be saying publicly. And so, and, and Trump kind of talked about this all the time, about how there's such a huge difference in rhetoric and an action and how he might you know use rhetoric to you know bring Putin to a negotiating table or bring whatever world leader to a negotiating table I mean he was fairly tough on both Russia and China and was actually fairly friendly with their leaders um, in in those public settings um, even beyond what I was comfortable with and so it's a good example though that you can say one thing and do things nobody is ever going to hear about because they're not going to get coverage um, and they're just sort of through the bureaucracy um, and that's a really sad state of affairs. Yeah look I mean lurking in the entire background of the Russia-Ukraine story which obviously is very much like the story of the week in the month is is Xi Jinping in Taiwan and China obviously right I mean I, I I have given a lot of thought over the past week or two um you know as someone who has been to Taiwan or excuse me has been to Hong Kong who saw Hong Kong back in 2016 um I, I we did nothing I mean we the United States I, I I obviously would never call for boots on the ground in Hong Kong for goodness sake but what did we do last year when when the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, effectively, I, I'm exaggerating slightly here, but they effectively kind of took over Hong Kong a solid 30 years, 25, 30 years before like the, for, the formal transfer of power was to have taken place in the late 2040s. So, uh, I mean, that obviously augurs horribly for the fate of Taiwan. You kind of couple that with what's going on here. You couple that with what Ben is talking about with the China initiative and obviously, a, you know, a recurring late motif of the show, which is kind of just the way with the way that the Fortune 500 and Wall Street and all kind of our, our financial elites are kind of just totally in bed with, with the Chinese Communist Party. Um, my very black pill take on China is that I think it's only a matter of time um, before Xi Jinping actually sends the People's Liberation Army into Taiwan. Um, I, I still think that we should be doing all that we reasonably and prudentially can to prevent that from happening. Um, as on the show, we've talked about obviously kind of arming our allies in the region to the extent that they will allow us to do so, South Korea, Philippines. Uh, Japan, obviously, which has a unique um, history with respect to weaponry, and they are um, very reticent to kind of arm themselves up again for reasons that I don't find particularly persuasive, but I'm not Japanese, so I don't pretend to fully understand it. Um, but uh, my fairly black belt take, and I hope that I'm wrong on this, obviously, is that it's only a matter of time. And unfortunately, that would really be a bigger deal for a lot of reasons, honestly, than Russia kind of just waltzing into the Donbass, arguably even kind of just opposing Zelensky and taking Kiev. Because from a Taiwan perspective, I mean, forget about kind of like the actual geography of the island. Taiwan Semiconductor is there. Um, and Taiwan Semiconductor, if I'm not mistaken, is a plurality of U.S. semiconductors, U.S. chips. And you kind of add that up with kind of mainland China's already kind of outsized influence and presence in that space. I mean, we're getting really dicey there, guys, about kind of the um, the way that China can kind of hold that very sophisticated and militarily sensitive weaponry over our head there. So I really pray that I'm wrong, um, but we're a little kind of straying off the course at this point. But anyway, I, I, all, all these segments kind of float together is kind of the point that I'm trying to make here, I guess. Well, and speaking of that point, um, and speaking of presidents saying one thing and, and doing another and, and using sort of superficial signaling to uh, pass different, more radical um, and, and less popular agendas, 
um, my segment is going to be focused on Joe Biden's State of the Union address as one of the, the first big events for the Democratic Party to uh, signal their tone in this election cycle post Glenn Youngkin. Um, and I really do mean to say post Glenn Youngkin, but it's also post all of these recalls, school board recalls that we've seen, CNN recognizing um, with under new leadership that they need to change their brand and be you know, less radically cultural leftist. There's been what feels like um, small, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, you can sort of see the, the earthquake coming and, and maybe it's Yunkin. We'll look back and realize Yunkin was the earthquake. Uh, but we really see the Democratic Party starting to understand that tying itself obsessively to radical cultural leftism was not the, the wisest tactical decision. Joe Biden um, gave what Chris Hayes described repeatedly as a meat and potatoes speech on MSNBC after it was over. Joy Reid was like, wow, it was really, you know, Biden is a guy you're not going to get the red meat from. Um, and yet he managed to refer to abortion as health care. He called on Congress to pass the Equality Act. He talked in, in fairly radical terms about transgender rights. Um, and it all goes to show he can say defund the or he can say fund the police as much as he wants and in as strong terms as he wants but the democratic party has now dug itself so deeply into this hole of rad radical cultural leftism that a generation of journalists and activists um, and people on the left uh, in this sort of vocal minority in its base demand nothing less um, and, and when you spend years inflating the definitions of bigotry um, to mean one thing when the rest of the country sees it as another, you're going to have a really difficult time backtracking um, because you're on the re record repeatedly saying that, you know, funding the police is tantamount to bigotry. And so it's true that the State of the Union address really was meant for, you know, de-leaning people in the middle um, who have been disillusioned with the Biden presidency. And that's exactly, you know, it wasn't for the journalist class that was breathlessly tweeting about it, but that's exactly why it's, um, it's a useful sort of glimpse into how Democrats are trying to rhetorically and, and symbolically shift the culture war that they've been waging to the back burner. They want it to seem like an afterthought, but they will still be waging it because they can't not continue to wage it. They have they really put themselves in a difficult uh, situation. And before I, I punt to the group, I'll just say I, I have no doubts that the media is going to help them whitewash their record and pretend that none of this happened. Um, of course, they're going to do that. But I still think it's going to be very difficult because of the growth of independent media and because of the base um, for Democrats to to really meaningfully shift. So with that, I'll, I'll open it to up, open it up to the group. Did you guys see the speech in a in a similar sort of vein? And do you see the Democratic Party um, in a similar type of pickle? I mean, to your point about like whitewashing their record, I, I think that's exactly what's what's going on, right? They're trying to pretend that even to the point where Joe Biden was like, no, we need to fund the police as if his own party like hadn't been saying defund the police for the last like two straight years. But even like outside of the speech from just a COVID policy standpoint, it was just infuriating how the fact that, you know, a day before or two days before the speech, Joe Biden was walking alone uh, on the White House lawn wearing a mask. And because suddenly, conveniently, the science changed just in time for his speech, he was, you know, 
in a crowded chamber without a mask, like weirdly headbutting people when he was talking to them after the speech. And Nancy Pelosi, same thing. You know, the day before she had been fining House Republicans $500 for every mask violation, and then suddenly it was fine. So there has definitely been a pivot. And I guess the question is like, are, are the voters, you know, going to fall for it? Because they clearly think voters are stupid enough to do so, that they're going to ignore, like, don't believe your lying eyes, don't believe reality, don't believe the the clip montages that you see everywhere of, of Democrats making this point. Uh, and I just really think it's shameless. Um, you know, you can't, a more authentic and I think a real way of handling it because they, I think they do need to make the shift is to acknowledge the fact that they did say it and they were wrong and it didn't work. Um, but you know, the arrogance and hubris in politics never allows for that. So, well, I guess we just have to wait and see, because I do think you're right though, that, that the progressive left will not be satiated. The journalist class will not be satiated. So that element of it will continue. And Joe Biden will either continue to be pulled along by it or he'll actually have to take a firmer hand. Yeah, I mean, my my biggest takeaway from this from the speech last night, which you know I unfortunately watched every minute of, was just the total disconnect between the message that he attempted to convey to the American people and where he is sitting in current polling. Uh, I mean, I mean, his approval ratings are historically terrible right now. I mean, we're talking like thirty five to forty percent approval ratings here. I mean, I you know the R D generic ballot this fall is showing unprecedented landslides for the GOP. I mean, if you buy the polling and, you know, obviously the polling has historically been wrong over the past five, 10 years, but it's usually been wrong in a, in, in a Democrat direction. So when they're predicting kind of Republican majorities this magnitude, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, take with a grain of salt, obviously, but it's looking pretty good for the Republican Party this fall. I mean, you know, I, I saw Henry Olson kind of break it down and say, if you kind of take this and you take that and you kind of transpose it and you kind of extrapolate, then the Republican Party could potentially be looking at congressional majorities, the likes of which that it has not seen since, since the Calvin Coolidge presidency about 100 years ago. So, uh, you know, you take that and you compare it with what we heard last night. And, and it's just like, what what is going on there? Because he obviously did a lot of happy talk about like, you know, like Western superiority vis-a-vis Russia, obviously like the Ukrainian ambassador and kind of like this kind of kumbaya stuff. But the point is, like, if you are trailing in the polls as badly as Biden and his party are trailing, are, are trailing, excuse me, at this point, then the onus is really on you to kind of go into like the halftime locker room, proverbially speaking, and change your game plan. I, I mean, you've got to like really kind of change course. You've got to change direction. I heard absolutely nothing like that last night whatsoever. And to the extent that he had kind of major applause lines, it seemed to me like there were applause lines, um, you know, that he's been literally on the other side of the issue on for the past like year and a half, two years, you know, whether it's kind of slowly emerging from COVID hysteria, whether it's funding the police, not defunding the police, obviously. I mean, I guess kudos that he's saying that. I mean, let's give him a modicum of credit where I suppose he deserves it. But the rhetoric from Biden and Harris going back to the 2020 campaign on Black Lives Matter and defund the police stuff was horrific. It was abhorrent. I mean, Kamala Harris was literally talking about obviously funding the riots in Kenosha and stuff like that, right? So um, I, I, I think the American people are smart and savvy enough to really just see through this, to see through the outrageous notion um, that masking in Congress was completely required, lest you be fined as recently as like a week or two ago. And now apparently it's like totally fine and kosher to just like, uh, you, you know, symbolically, performatively social distance, but like kind of team up together. 
As a friend messaged me last night, by the way, look at the Supreme Court justices that were there. Wasn't it just like a few weeks ago that we had like a mini like contrived controversy from Nina, Nina Tottenberg, if I recall, about like Gorsuch and Sotomayor and like masking at the court. And then they were there like last night during the State of the Union, just totally unmasked. So I, I, I think the median American is savvy enough to see right through this charade. And it really was just a charade to me at the, at the end of the day. And also, by the way, if there were more protests over social justice, there's no way that Joe Biden in the midst of that would come out and say, we need to fund the police and we can all agree on that. It was just an easy line last night. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was a perfect illustration of rolling quest theater. Uh, frankly, I just, I just felt such contempt for on every single level of the disingenuous staged nature of what transpired. Um, last night. And I have to believe that most Americans also have a, a similar kind of visceral reaction when they see this, although people who are not engaged in this on a day-to-day -day basis uh, perhaps could be fooled by the calls for unity and the like. I, I hope and pray they're not. I mean, lest we forget, this is someone who's called basically half the country insurrectionists, neo-Confederates, neo-Klansmen, your Bull Connor, if you believe in voter ID, uh, among the unvaccinated, unwashed masses, that you can expect a dark winter of death, et cetera. We know all of the ways in which he has maligned and smeared tens of millions of Americans throughout his presidency. Um, one of my takeaways from last night is that the speech was sort of, to the extent it held together in any way, a self-own. Like, what were the kind of three pseudo applause lines, I guess? You know, back to school police the streets and defend the border. Uh, the things that he has been completely MIA on, of course, um, you know, he's not gonna triangulate in any way, of course, because the actual policy items that he laid out are just more of the same. Uh, and I think what you get is that, that question of, are you better off than you were a year ago? I don't know how any Americans, and of course the polling demonstrates this, a clear majority of Americans disagree with that. This was a speech that from my perspective showed America will get weaker, poorer, less secure, less peaceful at home and abroad. Uh, but the president spoke really strongly about liberty and independence for Ukraine, far less so for the American people. And, and that was kind of disturbing. I thought, um, last but not least, you know, besides uh, the repudiation of his own agenda in this speech, worth noting again that while he was talking about you know, standing up with Ukraine, once again, he talked about the green energy agenda, which is precisely what empowers Vladimir Putin both the Greens in Europe and the Greens in America, who have pushed an anti-energy unleashing agenda, which of course accrues to the benefit of Vladimir Putin. I guess if I had one silver lining from that speech beyond the fact that, you know, thankfully, or maybe not, the president is sort of a non-entity in almost every single way. And it's really the, the deep state that's driving things. So his lack of coherence, maybe it doesn't matter that much in the final analysis, although who knows at the end of the day who's actually calling the shots. But I think I would say I was pleasantly surprised that he did not go all in on the rhetoric of insurrection, the insurrection narrative. And I think that's telling. That might mean that the Democrats realize that it doesn't wash to call half the country anti-democratic uh, putschists, I guess would be the, the term for it. So uh, kudos to the president for not leaning into the false insurrection narrative and further smearing and maligning tens of millions of us deplorables. Joy Reid was sort of lamenting the absence of January 6th from his speech on MSNBC afterwards. And Nicole Wallace chimed in to say, well, maybe, you know, the president just didn't want to divide the chamber with that rhetoric. <laughs> 
So yeah, maybe but it's right there. They're sort of starting to wake up. Um, I'm a little bit scared to toss uh, this next subject to Rachel because I feel like she's just going to uh, devour it <laughs> and, and shred the Republican Party, leave it in tatters. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, I, I actually wanted to return to this issue of um, that we actually discussed on this podcast, I think a couple of weeks ago, um, Inez was with us at the time, Emily, and it was this idea that um, of McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell coming out and saying, we're not going to have an agenda running into the 2022 midterms. Our agenda is that Democrats are terrible and that's it. Sorry, that's all you're getting. <laughs> and I wrote a whole essay about this in The Federalist about why I actually think that's a bad, a, a strategically bad idea. I mean, I understand there's a, there's a rational element to it in the sense that, you know, when your enemy's committing suicide, you don't stop him. But polling suggests that, you know, Republicans are flocking to, or I'm sorry, Democrats are flocking to the Republican side because of the cultural overreaches of the Democratic Party, all the things that we constantly talk about. But in many cases, these are not traditional Republicans. And so if you actually are going to expand the base, you're going to keep these voters, you have to tell them what you're going to do. And you have to be very clear about how you're going to address the issues that are plaguing them. So there is obviously a vacuum here uh, from from the Senate Republican leadership and conservatives, um, you know, have long said someone needs to step into this breach. Well, Senator Rick Scott from Florida actually did. Uh, he saw McConnell's non-agenda and he said, no, I will write my own. And he released a 60 page, 11 point agenda um, that he thinks, you know, if Republicans take back majority in the Senate should sort of outline how they govern. Now, you can agree or disagree with the substance of that agenda. There's a lot in there and it covers everything from sort of the economic uh, plights of the country all the way down to the cultural uh, issues that are, are fo you know, fomenting a, a lot of the Republican base. But the fact that he did something I think is significant here because not only that he actually did something, and that's the leadership I think a lot of Republicans have been looking for, but the way that his own Republican leadership, McConnell uh, and, and Thune, the majority whip have, or the minority whip have responded to him, which is to say they have savaged him completely. <laughs> uh, at, at, as soon as this agenda was released, um, you know, you, you had reports in Politico, which I call the burn book of Washington, um, you know, basically reporting on closed door meetings where McConnell and his allies were savaging Rick Scott for even doing this, for having the gall to do it. And then you had a press conference right after uh, that meeting where McConnell was asked about Scott's agenda. And the first thing he had to say was, well, if we take back the majority, I will be the majority leader. Okay. Right. Like <laughs> if you have to say it out loud, maybe you're feeling a little insecure. Uh, and also it's not a guarantee, right? He has to be elected uh, in a conference wide election that occurs after, after the, uh, the midterms. But I think it just goes to show, Rachel, sorry, you should, go ahead. Clarify, you should clarify for the gentleman that burn book is a mean girls reference. <laughs> yes. And, the, and Mitch McConnell is Regina George here. The movie I return to to explain Washington constantly is Mean Girls. Uh, everybody thinks it's West Wing or House of Cards. It's not. It's basically high school tweens like kicking the crap out of each other. That is Washington. And, and Mitch McConnell is the head plastic. Uh, Regina George for exactly instances like this, where this isn't legislative genius, this isn't, you know, sort of calc, you know, calculation or, or arm twisting, this is bullying. And anyone who challenges the establishment narrative, anyone who is perceived to challenge uh, the current status quo of power in Washington is treated like garbage. And again, this is not legislative maneuvering, this is just being a mean girl. And that's exactly what's going on here. And again, I come, I come back to the idea that like, 
you can agree or disagree with the substance. There's a lot in this agenda and I applaud them for actually thinking through it and not just putting out like five bullet points. They put out 11 in 60 pages. But the point is that he stood up and did something. And for the conservative movement that's been asking for kind of new leadership for people to actually aggress and step into this vacuum, he should be applauded for that. And the fact that McConnell is tearing him down, uh, I am always interested in who the establishment goes after and why. And in this case, it is because uh, their power base is being threatened. So good for Rick Scott. Uh, You know, there's plenty of things that you can agree or disagree with with what he's put out, but good for him for having the the courage to do it. And I'll throw it open to the group for that. I was going to say, I I was talking to Rachel about this earlier. I love her take on this because I read Rick Scott's agenda and I thought a lot of it was just sort of, it was, it was very boilerplate and it didn't show me that the party had shifted exactly as much as it probably should on these issues. Um, I thought some of it was a little tonally off, but I hadn't thought of it in terms of, uh, in the terms that Rachel just put it which are probably, that is the main takeaway. The main takeaway from the agenda isn't probably, it probably actually is not the substance. It's the move that Rick Scott made um, to fill the vacuum that Mitch McConnell has left. And on terms of, of agenda and on terms of substance, Mitch McConnell's agenda has been power. Um, that's what his sort of, the substance of Mitch McConnell's speakership is power um, through, through judges, particularly through judges and through all of those other maneuvers where you see cocaine Mitch as his people like to call him. It's about power, that's what he's focused on. And so I think it, it's extremely interesting to see somebody like Rick Scott who's interested in leadership position himself this way by trying to position himself as a leader on substance, putting something out to say, this is what Senate Republicans would want an agenda to look like and have an agenda. To, To do that, it just is extremely important. And I think it's fantastic that Rachel pointed it out because I was sort of falling into the, the group think um, of like, okay, eh, you know, we, we went through this on Twitter, it's okay. But actually there's something much, much deeper um, in the works with what Rick Scott is, is doing here. And um, I'm curious if other Senate Republicans sort of pick up on his lead and are now emboldened to kind of stand up to McConnell in similar ways. So, First of all, um, I have to object that uh, that I need to be kind of women's playing mean girls to me. Um, for, the, for, the, for, for the record, I, thir- I, thir- I thoroughly enjoyed the film when I saw it. When did that come out? Back in like 05, 06, something like that? Um, it was 2004. Yeah. 2004, okay. Yeah, I, it's I not like a film, was- Josh. It's a documentary about Washington. Okay. <laughs> um, I've I, I misspoken. I apologize. Um, no, I, I, I genuinely remember enjoying it, actually, for whatever that's worth. Um, look, I mean, I mean, it seems to me like like that this obviously is just crass bullying for the sake of bullying. Um, you know, we've dunked on Mitch McConnell a number of times on this podcast as a podcast that features Rachel Bovar as a co-host is one to do. Um, he certainly deserves um, much of the scorn, perhaps all of it that we that 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 we give him. Um, look, I also flipped through Rick Scott's thing. I mean, it's not necessarily like the most like avant-garde, cutting-edge proposal in the world. I mean, he's not kind of um, you know calling for like nationalization of big tech companies. He's not calling um, really for anything particularly kind of draconian or kind of paradigm shifting here. Um, there was certainly some good rhetoric about um, using congressional power on abortion that I thought was kind of like a little outside of like the normie status quo. Um, we saw some like Bill Crystal and, and some of his some of his types that were kind of criticizing Rick Scott on these grounds, which says way more about Bill Crystal than it does about anything else, obviously. Um, 
But I, I, I guess I, I'll make a very basic point, which is I literally don't understand what is so bad about saying what you are for. I mean, I understand that to kind of go back to what I was saying on the previous segment, I mean, the polls are going to sh are, are showing historic Republican landslides uh, this fall, showing kind of um, Calvin Coolidge era congressional majorities for the GOP come next January. I understand that. But that doesn't mean especially kind of given all kind of the intellectual ferment that the Trump administration years brought, that doesn't mean that there isn't an onus to kind of take where we are and push the ball forward. And again, like Rick Scott's proposal here and flipping through it is a very, very, very modest way to try to do that. It is not a cutting edge document. So the notion that a party leader like McConnell could kind of you know muster up animus towards this just strikes me as just odd. And I agree that it really is not explainable for any other paradigm other than kind of just catty teenage girls. Honestly, that's that, that, that seems to me like that's basically right. Well, I'll, I'll spare you and the audience my critique of Mean Girls, uh, although full, full, full disclosure, I uh, th thoroughly enjoyed it. However, many too many times I've seen it as well. Um, but I will say, I think that Rachel's point is really well taken. It's a shrewd rule of politics. Look to, to whom the establishment is attacking, and that will provide great insight into the inner workings that you might not otherwise see. And in this case, I think it's very clear that they're attacking on the basis of the fact that he would dare step out of line and put out any plan, not, the, not even get into the merits of the plan itself. Uh, from, my, from my vantage point, Totally agree when, you're, when your opponent is hanging himself, let him. But that said, politics is a business that requires a vision and a message to actually galvanize your voters. It's not enough to say the other side is terrible. You have to tell the American people how you are going to protect them and fight back against the people inflicting terrible punishment upon them. And having a, an actual agenda to achieve it, no one should fear putting out an agenda like that. Now, again, whether it's that McConnell et al. fear the agenda itself or just the fact that someone would have the gall to do it, I, I think is de debatable. And it seems more like the latter than the former. But I think content free campaigns are ultimately losing campaigns. You may win some battles, but you're going to lose a war long term. You know what the left's vision is every single time. You know what their agenda items are going to be. When Republicans have been really successful, go back to the contract for America, for example, in 94. They put out a compelling agenda. And I also think it's incumbent upon conservatives to put out an agenda if for no other reason than to shift the Overton window on a whole slew of issues. Put out your most extreme guidepost and then lead people towards that vision, even if you're not going to get there fully. The other side is constantly shifting the Overton window. We ought to do the same. I'll repeat what I've said a million times on this show. What would, and granted, I mean, they're kind of declining, but what would Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer do in an equivalent situation? That's how we ought to think about politics as well. So with that, um, to Josh's point, everything really did flow well through this episode and let's keep it going um, by transitioning to final thoughts. Who wants to start us off? All right, I mean, I'll start us off by just kind of just going back to the Russia-Ukraine stuff because I'm, ha I'm honestly having like a hard time thinking about anything else, probably because my Twitter feed and my cable news in the background, it's all they're, it's all they're talking about as well here. Um, so look, I, I, we, I spent a lot of time at the beginning talking about kind of the rise of liberal internationalism, but I think it's kind of important here to emphasize that the so-called kind of American case for Vladimir Putin, I think is vanishingly thin. Um, and um, I think saying that does not necessarily make one kind of like a Soros puppet or a neoliberal shill or anything like that. 
Um, you got you to under, understand who Vladimir Putin is, okay? I mean, this is a guy who literally came up to the ranks of the KGB. He is a cold warrior to his bones. He has said time and time again that the dissolution of the Soviet Union is one of the great tragedies of modern history. I mean, I have no doubt whatsoever if he had his druthers that he would kind of bring back Belarus and Moldova and the Baltic states, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, all of them, that he would kind of resuscitate kind of the Soviet Union in all of its glory or inglory as, as the case may be here. And, you know, it's important, uh, we can kind of juxtapose Ukraine with its neighbor to the north, Belarus, where Lukashenko, um, you know, rigs elections, uh, literally rigs elections. Um, and he is very much kind of just a Putin puppet. Belarus has said that they are, they are actually kind of helping the Russian military in the, in the assault on Kiev. And our allies in the region, from a U.S. national interest perspective, and this, that's obviously the only way to do foreign policy, we should be thinking about what our closest allies on the ground want. So, you know, in this case, that kind of means kind of like the Visegrad states, right? Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, and they are Baltic states in particular as well. And they are unified on this. This is, this is not a close call. Um, they, they are unified insofar as they want um, the Zelensky regime to stay in power when, on the other hand, he could be toppled for a Belarus-style Putin puppet. So it seems to me like that is the that 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 is clearly um, what we should be rooting for. Um, obviously, the means of doing so is where all this gets kind of nuanced and thorny. And obviously, we should be ruling out troops and no fly zones and all this kind of crazy neocon neoliberal crap. Um, but when the choice becomes Putin or Zelensky, I, I just feel a need to underscore that I do not think that that is a particularly close call. Um, the close call comes obviously in kind of uh, getting through the propaganda and kind of like the fog of war, and then obviously ultimately the means of doing so. But I, I just wanted to underscore that point as well. Yeah, and, and oh, sorry, I'll add, okay, so, oh, sorry, Rachel. I was just gonna say, that I think it was, it was a Ukrainian woman who was interviewed on CNN and she had picked up a gun and was fighting for her country. And um, said something about like how they're fighting for a new world order. It was it was her. Maybe it was even like I, I forget who it was. Anyway, someone said that, and uh, the online right was like, "Wow, it's just it's out in the open now." And I, I think it's it's interesting because new world order is a buzzword for sort of conspiracy theorists and everything, but it also is just like a phrase that has literal meaning. And like if you if you separate the buzzword connotation from it, it is true that right now what's happening happening like Putin is intentionally trying to create a new world order not in the conspiratorial sense just in the literal sense of what that phrase means um, where the west is weakened um, and where sort of Russia and, and China have their empires um, and are, are resurgent um, in terms of their powers and America is undercut um, the EU and NATO are undercut etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, there's a ton of nuance in there but the black and white actually still remains. It, it actually still exists that, um, you know, the, the West and America and our Republican system of government um, are better systems. And that order does protect. Um, it, it actually hurts people in a whole lot of ways that we should correct and we should absolutely address. There's no way that we shouldn't. Um, and this has come up with Brexit and Trump time and time again, but uh, fundamentally does protect people um, and protects freedoms and liberties. And no matter how cliched and tired all of that sounds now in this time where we are all reasonably disillusioned, um, I, I do think there is you know, something vast at stake here. That doesn't mean we need troops on the ground and to enforce a no-fly no zone. 
Um, and I think it's been heartening to see the nuanced responses from people like Blake Masters, even Joe Biden himself, when you can understand the words he's saying in speeches. Um, so it's it's all sort of playing out um, in an interesting way, but I think in a very, very important way. And I would just echo everything that, that Josh said, Josh had already said. Yeah, one of the sort of threads I was going to pull that I think flows through each of these segments, which is maybe a, a sort of side point to the one we've been talking about, but you know, again, is this gulf on a lot of these issues between where the American people are and where their sort of elites are. And this is always the case with war. <laughs> this is always the case with defense policy, you know, especially with Ukraine. You know, you you have the, the traditional ways in which the U.S. has responded to a lot of these conflicts. And then you have now, which if we take Emily's point, you know, that we should be less cynical about this, right? There is some nuance being forced into the debate, which means, you know, the sort of elite cabal, the defense cabal that makes these decisions uh, away from them is is being more forced to take into account how people actually feel about this conflict, um, not and take sort of the feelings out of it, right? In the sense that what should we do to support our interest while also recognizing the the interest we have in a free Ukraine? Um, and that's a level of debate that really hasn't taken place before. And then, you know, I think you also talk about Ben's segment, you know, where you have this woke uh, elite uh, sort of take on espionage. Like that, again, is just this narrow cabal of people forcing their progressive view of the world onto our intelligence gathering capabilities, which we haven't talked really about how scary I think that is because it's hilarious, but it's also very scary. And it doesn't reflect, you know, again, the base of the country, I think, on these issues. And then, you know, coming back around to sort of how, again, the ruling class here in Washington just doesn't have any interest uh, in actually addressing the concerns of their base. They just want to take power for the sake of it, to a majority to put it on a shelf and polish it. So I do think that, you know, we can call it the post-Trump moment or whatever, but I do think there has been forced into the conversation a little bit more of this, like you have to actually take these concerns seriously. The country's changing a lot of really key questions. Uh, and I think our politics is, is being more defined by that than it has been in a while. And I think that's a good thing. Uncharacteristic white pill. <laughs> I guess I'll say I, I hope that trend continues. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm sanguine or not about the situation, but I'll just put out there that every single day that goes on with Kiev still standing as independent of Vladimir Putin's Russia uh, and where Russia, it seems, is bogged down. Although, again, I don't really trust any news from any side that's being reported about the state of play. But every single day that goes by with Ukraine as an independent country in whole or in part, I think is devastating for Putin. My assumption had always been that he would like to roll in as fast as possible, uh, depose Zelensky and put in a puppet and then have basically a, a proxy state just like a Belarus uh, because getting bogged down in an occupation and dealing with an insurgency would be disastrous on a lot of levels for Russia. Uh, my hope is that one way or the other, the Russians are bled dry in this drive to uh, seize Ukraine. Um, let's see if it happens. Let's see what the U.S. can do at minimal cost to effectuate uh, the, the, or to help inflict, help the Ukrainians inflict maximal pain on the Russians. Because I think that's what all of this comes down to is how do you spend the least in terms of U.S. blood and treasure uh, to achieve an interest. And, and of course, it's an interest to keep Ukraine out of the hands of Putin, period, full stop. Um, looking at sort of the broader picture in terms of potential silver linings in the situation, first of all, the security umbrella that we've provided to European powers, it's incumbent upon European powers, all of them, 
period full stop to themselves arm and be prepared for threats posed to them. And number two, this should be the death knell of the green agenda. This should lead to a massive renaissance in nuclear and other technologies in Europe and beyond to have a bulwark against a regime like a Russia. You can't be dependent on a Russia or a China or an Iran or any of these kinds of powers for any essential goods, services, commodities. Uh, and, and any world that continues to persist under this illusion that you know, we can counter these powers, but then we're going to be dependent upon China for our most vital medicines, or we're going to be dependent upon Russia for pumping out millions of barrels of oil a day, uh, that's a disastrous paradigm to be engaging in. And I think you know, one thing we ought to look at in terms of how we evaluate uh, coherence or lack thereof of this administration's policies is that there is a burgeoning China, Russia, Iran axis. And of course, the rogue powers always kind of partner and ally. They want to split and divide the West. It, it serves their ends. They work together, even though, of course, they have their own internal differences. But there are actual on paper strategic agreements, decades long strategic agreements in hugely significant sectors that have been agreed upon in recent years between Russia and Iran, between Russia and China, obviously, between China and Iran. That is the axis to watch. And so for there to be any coherence for this or any other administration, uh, all policies need to be thought of in context of that burgeoning axis that, of course, opposes U.S. national interests and, of course, is dominated by communist China. Last point I'll make really briefly is Josh mentioned you know, Taiwan and obviously Xi Jinping's lust to seize it is probably what he thinks will be his crowning achievement. Michael Goodwin in The New York Post uh, reported basically rumblings. He recently interviewed President Trump, rumblings that Trump had threatened Xi Jinping with attacking China to the extent she had made a move on Taiwan, and Vladimir Putin that he would attack Moscow to the extent Putin sought to seize Ukraine. Uh, in my own independent reporting, I have also heard these rumblings as well from people in the know. And I think if there's one kind of takeaway from it, it's that one person who threatens to rain annihilation down on powers for crossing certain red lines and who is perceived as credibly potentially posing such a threat really can make the difference between a stable but dangerous world and a very unstable dangerous world. And I think it's very clear that with the current occupant of the White House, uh, that stability is gone. The next leader needs to pose a credible threat to inflict massive pain on any power uh, who would cross red lines and actually prove it with their actions. Well, on behalf of Ben, Rachel, and Josh, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.